0: Well, why don't we start off with just kind of talking about how you two came to collaborate on uh, on this project? So
1: I'll I'll start, and then Isabel can chime in. So, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> I think Isabel approached me and was saying that she was thinking about writing a book about coaching, and I said I think that's awesome. I've been thinking about writing a book about other pieces around professional learning. Maybe we should do that together. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's a little bit of how we started just kind of brainstorming how we might come together with common goals, like the things that we both wanted to put out in the world, how they aligned and, and what pieces we wanted to add. Yeah, I
2: would, I would just add, tag to that because I do, I remember vividly the day, right? Marisa, it was breakfast at a, you know, at a, at a Hilton Garden Inn. We had luckily just um, both, uh, both began working together for the same organization in a very similar role. So we had just recently started spending a lot of time together and I knew that I loved the way Marisa thought and the way she learned and the way she expressed herself. Um, and I actually went down to that breakfast cause I knew in the back of my head, I'd always, I just want to write this book. I got this book and I got to get it out of me and I don't know how to get it out of me. And I want a buddy to help me. Yeah. <laughs> so I went down to breakfast thinking maybe Marisa could just coach me through it. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, let's do it together. Um, it's something that we both really want to write about. And we both have a lot of, um, a lot of stories to tell.
0: Um, yeah. That's a, that's, that's a very coachy kind of experience really. You know something you start off on and then it just blossoms right so, right. so that sounds great sounds like it was very organic
2: scrambled eggs and hot coffee at the Hilton Garden Inn right
0: A lot of good things can happen over a breakfast <laughs> like that <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, well it sounds that sounds ideal um so why don't we just start off with the uh with the title of the book sort of since that's gonna set the context for um you know, the content of, of what we're discussing. Um, I know you start off early in the text um, talking about the definition of professional learning versus professional development. Um, so why don't we start with that? How, how do you define it since it is a redefinition?
2: Yeah, well, it's funny, I'll just start a little bit and then you can fix me up this time, Marisa, but um, the title was a really interesting piece, you know, the whole, for us as new authors, right, it's really intriguing to think about titles and book covers and all of those pieces that, um, uh, that make up a book that are actually really, really, really important. Um, And I think we would had lots of different titles throughout um, before we actually landed on professional learning redefined, and we worked really hard at um, strong words and um, really sort of making a statement, um, so that we could, you know, make an impact. People would say, "Oh my gosh, that they they have something to say in this book," and I, I think, I think we have right. and So we kick it off with a bang with the difference, what how we're redefining um, the whole concept of professional development.
1: So. Well, yeah. it's even interesting that in our conversations about the title, um, our friends at uh, Corwin were saying, well, wait, don't you mean professional development? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're just so used to kind of that term. And I think what yeah. what we really wanted to put forth here was that, you know, professional development oftentimes is something that happens to teachers. And we really wanted to, rethink and stand on the shoulders of those who've kind of put this for us. Lois Easton's talked about it. Michael Fullen's talked about it in, in the ways that, you know, professional learning really centers the learner at the center of that. And in this case, the learner is the teacher um, and the educators who are doing that work. So, you know, professional development as a term, I think is dies hard. (laughs) It's just been just part of our vernacular or we've even, you know, shortened it to PD, and we talk about that PD often. I went to a PD, I had PD, PD was done to me. Um, yeah. and I really wanted to rethink um, how to really shift that language because language really defines how we see ourselves and and how we see the, the things that we engage in along that line.
2: Mm-hmm. And I don't think our thinking is new around this, right? I just literally was at uh, a Learning Forward board meeting and um, talking with a district leader who's really struggling with the title of her, professional learning department. It's the PD department in her district, right? And so she's got a new superintendent. She's really excited to sort of take a stand and shift the language and call themselves the professional learning department. And she thinks
1: just that will uh, shift the conversation across the district. Even Learning Forward, right? Shifted their name from the National Staff Development Council. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Certainly we're not the first, um, but really wanted to kind of put out there in the world not only our thinking, but what does the evidence say around that, which is the second part of our title, really kind of hitting on, it's an evidence-based guide. We're standing on the shoulders of those who have really done some deep research here and then adding our own practical stories and ways in which that research comes to life in real schools and districts. And I think that's kind of, you hit the nail on the head, Maurice, I think that's kind of what makes this work so unique. You know, there are lots
2: of books out there that have strategies and techniques, and then there are lots of sort of tomes of research, right? But we've worked really hard to bring everything together in one place for the coach or for the principal or for the person in charge of the professional learning department to pull off their shelf and have one resource that will help them think deeply about their plan for their their district, their team, their building, um, and base their strategies and all their thinking around what research tells us.
0: Yeah. I know from you know, just working in coaching and doing professional learning with teachers uh, as a coach, that the terms that are used when you're having discussions are very key because those are the concepts you're relying on. I, I liked what you had said, Marisa, about uh, I had p d. It sounds like something you might need a med for, you know. Um, exactly. <laughs> so I just I, I I think that I think that that's an important distinction that that appears early on in in the text so. One of the things I was wondering, too, I know that you guys have worked with different districts. You're not embedded with, like, one district, right? Like me, where I'm with Albemarle County, I am only working in Albemarle County, and I'm always accessible. How does the work that you guys do translate to some of the long-ranging um, effects that you're you're looking to achieve based on, you know, some of the the reading?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we've seen in our role now is kind of all the things that don't go well. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like all of the things you don't want to do in some ways. So for example, you know, when a lot of times in our role, we're seen as an outsider to come in and and do a PD, right? Mm-hmm. Like they want an expert to kind of come in and do a PD. And, and we know very clearly that that very rarely does much of anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so what we've tried to do in our, current, in our current roles as being kind of an external right person to help guide and think about is what structures do you have in the district? How can we help you think about um, your long range plan? And I think that's what we really tried to do in many cases in chapter six is help people think about no more one-offs, no more let me hire this really great motivational speaker to come in and and give a day. How does this fit with your one-year, three-year, five-year goals for teaching and learning? And and so now I think one of the things we do try to do even in our current role is really push back against this kind of one-day outside savior. Really it's within you and how can we help you use some of the resources and tools that our organization provides for you to meet your goals. And, and I would also
2: add that on the sort of flip side of that, uh, you know, that's kind of how we work and what we've learned, but we have had the luxury too, of learning from lots and lots and lots of different districts through our work. Mm -hmm. And I think those stories are highlighted in our book. Um, you know, we really work hard to highlight the work of Charlotte Meck, the work of Virginia Beach, the work of PK Young, which is the, a lab school in Florida that Maurice, Maurice is really closely connected mm-hmm. to. So we've got those specific places highlighted, but um, the vignettes that we share in our resource and um, many of the activities that or strategies that we suggest really come from the work that we've learned from educators in the field in a lot of different places.
1: Um, so we feel like that's really well represented.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's one of those things is like a lot of times districts feel like their problems are really unique to them. And I'm kind of here to say that actually everybody yeah. has the same kind of issues. And I think that's one of the things that Isabel and I have really tried to do is that even in the vignettes that aren't particularly um, associated with a real district they're born from the realities that we've seen across many schools across the United States, many districts across the United States, and really hope that folks see themselves in those vignettes and are able to really take some lessons learned there. And, And one of the things I think that was important to us as we did this work was that there is no perfect professional
2: learning example, right? We're not going to, it's not there, right? We're all doing the best we can with the resources we have and the, you know, limited time that we have, right? So we're all trying to do the best we can with what we have at our fingertips. And we really tried to highlight places where things were going well, but also where people were having some bumps and Mm -hmm. then how they um, actually recovered from those and, and made sense of them as well.
0: Yeah, the, and I, I was thinking about how you said uh, a lot of people think that the problems they're having are particular to them. Um, I had talked with uh, John Almerode a few episodes back, and he went in there. They're right now, Visible Learning's trying to do a PLC uh, revision, and they're rolling that out uh, sometime in the next month. Um, and one of the things he said was they were doing you know that uh, same thing where they're going out to different schools and they put forth a uh, set of um, issues that may be in a PLC, and the people were just upset because they were like, "This is from our district, isn't it?" <laughs> and and he was like, "No, I swear it's not. We only have there's only like 14 different things we've isolated, and these are the 14 things." And they showed them, they're like, they were just flabbergasted from from. From that so it's it's interesting to hear you kind of echo that same concept and there's really a benefit to ha- also having that bird's eye view it can be something where people realize oh this isn't something that is unsolvable this isn't something that is completely out of the ordinary it's just something we have to take the steps to advance beyond
1: i think it's just one of those things where you know Everybody always feels like problems are unique to them, right? But, mm-hmm. but really, when we when we look inside, I think that was one of our biggest drivers for really including pretty detailed vignettes because they're born from authentic interactions. Many of them are born from exact situations that we've observed and witnessed. And so when I think about putting that forth, my hope is that there are people who look at that and say, oh my gosh, they got that exactly from our district Because Mm -hmm. through that, you're able to really see, okay, what's my way out? Where do I go from here? How do I plan forward? And I think linking those to those really well-researched aspects of professional learning helps people see how that research can come to life in their own district and not just kind of live in this research bubble that it is actually applicable in real life, you know, day-to-day scenarios there.
0: So um, looking at the idea of PD, though, is there a time where you would say there is a need for that differentiation for PD to happen, right? To kind of step it back a little bit, Um, because I know we are differentiating between professional learning and PD, but um, are there times where that may be exactly what to call the thing and...
1: I mean, I think there is definitely, we call them conceptual inputs. I mean, that's based off of a research term, but there are Mm -hmm. times and places where we need new information. We need somebody to teach us something. Sometimes that comes in the form of a book or an article or a video. Sometimes it comes in the form of an actual person who's coming Mm -hmm. in to kind of help you think through. I think the key on that is that it doesn't end there. That's actually just a real initiating event to the real learning that happens as you study whatever that, um, you know, Michael Fullan sometimes calls it an implementation, other folks call it an innovation, whatever that thing is that you're trying to then have be a part of your practice, that initiating event, whether it's a person, a book, or an article, whatever that might be, is just the beginning. Of your learning, and I think oftentimes that's where it stopped, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've hired this person; they came in, they taught us something, and now everybody's magically expected to have it part of their daily practice. And uh, we all know,
0: been <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. a coach, <laughs> knows yep. that that very rarely happens. Um, and I think it's often because it's not seen as just the beginning; it's actually, you know, seen as as a thing rather than than a starting point. Right, mm-hmm. being sure,
2: you know, just as a sort of a, an example of that, right, being sure that there's follow-up, that there's, you know, we have somebody come in to kick off school on August 14th and do some professional learning around culturally responsive teaching, right? So that can happen, mm-hmm. but then how do we make sure that our instructional coaches stay connected to that, that our building level principals stay connected to that, that there's some revisiting throughout the year so that um, it's a, a constant thread that runs through the work that we do in all settings. You know, one of the things that I was reflecting on as you were talking about that sort of conceptual input is that the role of the knowledgeable other in lesson study, right? So that having someone come in to give you some input around what, uh, you know, what a really sm- smart small group lesson should look like in literacy, right? This, is, this this is These are some of the important things you need to consider. And then as we continue our lesson study cycles throughout the year that we're gonna um, continue to implement some of those strategies that they taught us. Um, but, but really, I, I think that's very accurate. Marisa, staying connected to it and making it a repetitive cycle throughout the work that you do is important.
1: I think culturally responsive teaching is just a great example of that because oftentimes, right, like we can think about just what you said, Isabel. We're going to hire this great speaker. He's going to come in. All the teachers are going to hear it. Awesome. <laughs> and then it ends. Like, and then that's it. And the idea is, well, we brought in a culturally responsive person. Why didn't, you know, X happen? Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it, right? But we haven't thought about then, so how are we connecting that to folks' content? What's the duration? So now going into, like, all of those pieces that we know is what's critical to actually transfer into teacher practice, that's rarely attended to. And that's what we're really advocating for is know that these things happen, so plan for them. And then we can start to really see practice shift and student achievement Mm -hmm. hopefully follow that same path. And it's, it's, it's duration and it's coherence, right? Like, so it's duration
2: across time. It's also making sure that it's happening in different places in your, in your district, not just in one isolated space. I think one example that we really talk a lot about in the book, or probably didn't talk enough about actually in the book, but we do address it is the importance of your curriculum. So right, like where does culturally responsive teaching fit in your curriculum documents? Is it embedded there? Like spending some time really exploring the resources that you have and thinking about, um, you know, these instructional techniques and where do they fit? And do we need to think more deeply about the tools that we're using?
0: It's funny that you're talking about um, CRT because uh, we actually did what you're talking about. Beginning of the year, there was a big meeting, but then the coaches were involved throughout the year. And we just wrapped at the end of last month with, um, with our CRT book study and, and uh, learning sessions. So um, it's been pretty positive
2: it's on our mind also Darren uh, Zaretta Hammond is on our board and so great to work with us as an organization also and we're trying as you know through making sure that we are connecting our professional learning as an organization um, deeply and Mm -hmm. and embedding it in lots of ways throughout the work that we do.
0: One of the things we're looking at possibly doing to extend it is to see if you know, cause there's, there's definitely a link linkage between equity and differentiation. And so we're trying to find a way to sort of migrate into that while also retaining, um, the, um, the concepts that we, we worked on this year. So, um, so yeah, so it's been, it's been a wild ride as far as just, you know, conceptually building through some and working through something like that. Um, so, I mean, I think with that that topic, too, um, I think we're kind of getting into learning design a little bit, um, and I think that would be maybe a, a natural place to, to sort of ease into here. Um, would you like to speak a little bit about learning design? I mean, we're looking at adult learning versus, you know, what you do in a classroom, even though that's where it eventually expresses itself to some degree.
1: I think it's so interesting because, you know, this term learning design kind of comes from, for us, it comes from the idea that many checklists of powerful professional learning uh, characteristics often kind of presented in that checklist fashion, Mm -hmm. rather than really think about the interaction between those things. And so one of the things we know really clearly from research is that content-focused professional learning Leads to better outcomes, right? Rather than general, you know, behavioral techniques or questioning strategies, that actually embedding them in content is what makes is what um, is what really makes a difference. That coupled with what we called active learning. So all of the things that we know, any learner, whether adult, honestly, or student, is really situated in practical practice. So for us, that active learning piece was really around building on adult learning theory the idea that adults need to see an immediate application to their work right for those things to Mm -hmm. make sense they needed to know and see how it works in their classrooms with their kids so things like observations lesson study those pieces and then a collective participation so more than one person like really minimizing this idea of the lone wolf or the hero kind of out there doing that that together we're Mm -hmm. we're working on this When those two pieces interact, that's where we see the learning design coming together and and interact, meaning that it's been planned for in that way, that there is duration and there is coherence of the learning um, design over time. Isabel, I don't know what else you would add. (laughs) No,
2: I I would just, I'd add essentially that, right, like that active, engaged learner who has the opportunity, and we call it collective participation, I also like to call it collaboration, right? The Mm -hmm. opportunity really to gather with others and think deeply about what they're learning is so important, right? So giving, um, you know, making space for all of that to occur. I would also add that, I don't know, oftentimes we like to, make a real big distinction between adult learning and student learning, but all of the things that Marisa just talked about, I'd love to see happen in classrooms too with students, right? So some of the things that we talk about in our book, as well as when we um, uh, offer keynotes or do do provide learning opportunities around our text or around how, how might professional learning mirror the work that students actually do in their classrooms?
1: I think that by thinking about, those characteristics together under the umbrella of the term learning design, we kind of move away from the idea that it's like, well, I have content focus, check. (laughs) I've Mm -hmm. done it more than once, therefore I have duration, check. It's that I actually am thinking about how these things mutually support each other and that that becomes my driver. Like I think about them all together rather than individually along the way.
0: So when we look at the idea of the subject area uh, and the content knowledge, can you clarify a little more about that aspect of it? Um, Why is that so important? Because I know, you know, a a lot of the stuff I've seen historically is not situated strictly within, you know, say me, I'm, you know, I'm coming from an English background in high school right? And a lot of what I'm doing, aside from having to read stuff, you know, is not, is not really situated directly in that pedagogy.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because when you kind of unpack the research around content focused, not only does it appear on almost every list that's put out of like effective professional development characteristics, content focused is always on there. But Mm -hmm. what's interesting is when, um, Linda Darling-Hammond and her colleagues kind of unpacked what that was. It was not only about situating it within the content, but that it was situating it around the pedagogical content knowledge, how kids actually learn that particular content. So even when the technique is something kind of general, I think, again, we'll go back to culturally responsive teaching. Culturally responsive teaching is applicable in every subject area. Mm-hmm. So. So that is one kind of umbrella topic, but if we kept it that general, oftentimes teachers don't translate it into their practice. So when they really translate it is when culturally responsive teaching then is connected to social studies. So how does that come Mm -hmm. to life? How does that happen? And oftentimes that happens in PLCs, right? It's not as if we're going to, you know, Bring in a speaker, you know, again around each one of these subject areas, but it's a, it's taking that particular innovation or implementation and really connecting it very concretely to how do I teach so that kids learn and connecting it to that level of content focus,
2: which I think in turn. A better student achievement right like I think there's a direct link between the, the the need for content connected to professional learning and then and connecting to a teachers practice be, and then being able to use it when they go back into the classroom more explicitly and then student achievement from there too I think we sure just shared just share that also
1: well I think this is why in many cases so many folks are now calling for a connection between professional learning and the curriculums that are being used in schools so I think about you know when I was You know, teaching first grade, and we were just starting out with kind of alternative algorithms in mathematics, just as an example. And I was teaching kids, you know, negative numbers in first grade, things that, you know, (laughs) typically we weren't doing at that point. Not only did I need to understand it conceptually, as, you know, nobody ever taught me math in that way. But, I, right. but it helped me when we went down into everyday math, which was the curriculum we were using at that point, And they showed me how kids are learning it within the curriculum. And so I think it's a huge piece that's being talked about around, we've given teachers a lot of professional learning around metacognitive comprehension strategies, for example. And then they would go and have instructional materials that did not support that. And we expected them to be able to kind of make that leap rather than if they're not there how do within this particular text that you're using in that curriculum how will you add that how might we write questions together that really get at that 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 collective participation around the content focus is actually what leads to a shift in teacher practice rather than i taught you about metacognitive comprehension strategies now go do Mm-hmm. I also think that 's a piece we 've often missed in schools
2: right we really, We do a lot of work around professional learning that isn 't connected to the to everyday math or to uh, word study or to you know whatever resource being a writer right like whatever resource people are using we we miss that opportunity to bridge the gap for teachers to say well, this learning that you did around um, you know, uh, culturally responsive teaching. Well, this is how you might see it uh, play out in everyday math. And if we don't see it there, how can we then um, fix that curriculum so Mm -hmm. that it it is... Um, It is there. It is evident. Um, I think that's that's work that we really are remiss uh, oftentimes in central office, um, making that connection. And I think that's the piece that makes it so real and relevant and every day for teachers. That's how it really becomes actualized in teacher practice is making it evident in the resources that they're using.
0: Yeah. And, and it feels to me from listening to what, what you all are saying that the PLC is kind of the nexus for this to really sort of pass through and become um, usable for, for teachers. And it gets back to the concept of it being a professional learning community rather than, you know, uh, let's do some stuff for the admin community, right, I mean, you know.
1: It really is a shame that I think that term has been co-opted in a lot of places Mm to have replaced team meetings. We now call them PLCs, but they aren't actual PLCs. Right? uh, Because I completely agree with you, Darren, right? This is, PLC is the vehicle for a lot of this learning to take place in an ongoing and, you know, collaborative effort. Um, and teachers need time and space to be able to do this work together. So yeah, a real PLC is is ideal.
0: Yeah, yeah. So how would you incorporate the PLCs? Like, say, I mean, granted, you know, we just basically made note about how PLCs are often you know co-opted. But let's say you're coming to a school that has you know PLCs that that work okay, at least, right? How can you incorporate that into the type of work that you would do, say, if you're coming in, um, you know, to start, you know, something in motion?
1: Yeah, I think this starts to get at the idea of coherence a little bit. (laughs) I think districts have an awful lot of initiatives, right? And there's an awful lot of things that are trying to kind of be changed. And, you know, one of the things that I think we advocate for is let's pick something and see it through. So when we think about, you know, wanting to shift practice um, in literacy instruction from a real teacher-directed way of work to a more student-centered way of work, we want to hear more student talk than teacher talk. That's our goal Mm -hmm. as a district just making this up. (laughs) (laughs) Think about, right? Like, so then how do PLCs surround that? So Mm -hmm. if that's our goal, then every month my PLC is not rethinking math or science or like, that's what we're working on. And so I think about that collective effort and push towards using that vehicle to really meet that goal. So kind of, you know, thinking about the plan overall, but then how does that PLC really help you achieve that?
2: Or we are rethinking that concept, that conceptual input around science and math and, right? Like, but it's, that, that's the driver for our conversation as a PLC um, is is that that new knowledge we're learning and how it connects to our everyday, our everyday work together as a team. I also think the piece about the PLC is that we often, Forget, And I think it's one of the things that Maurice and I are learning even in our uh, professional work internally in our organization is the importance of that time for small groups of people to come together to have a rich conversation about a topic they are struggling with.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
2: that space is so critical in learning um, mm-hmm. that we have to, you know, we have to make it an opportunity, right? The, the large Uh, whole group settings where you know information is given the individual reading sure but that opportunity for me to work with four or five people around something that's hard for me to understand and hear Darren express it and from his perspective and Marisa from hers and to ask a question that I'm a little nervous to ask in front of a lot of people and it's a really safe space so I think that's a, a, a big piece of Uh, of learning and and I think, you know, connecting it coherently um, is absolutely critical too, right? Like how that PLC is connected from grade one to grade two to grade three to grade four to grade five Mm -hmm. and to whatever I'm doing in my faculty meeting on Wednesday afternoons and to whatever opportunity the district is offering me on August 14th,
0: right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I've heard you guys mention a couple times about um, student being the focus of of work, and I know it's in, it's in the text as well, Um, how might you, um, when you're working with a a faculty, um, how might you try and get that student to be the center of the, of the change, like, I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but I'm hoping maybe you can pick the ball up and run with it.
2: Yeah. I'll start and you can fix me, and Marisa. But, like, right, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing, right? It's always connected mm-hmm. to whatever my students are doing in the classroom. It's always connected to student achievement, right? So, making sure the voices of students are heard um, throughout any opportunity, whether that's through student writing, whether that's through um, uh videotaped lessons whether that's through a lesson experience right but really positioning whatever learning opportunity we're engaging in through the lens of students is critical um what might
1: you know i would i would add that i believe and my experience has shown me that teachers minds are changed after their hearts so when i think about initiatives often like, well, keep using it, culturally responsive teaching. Mm-hmm. Many times when we present that as an initiative through a research lens, through all of the evidence that tells us why these practices need to be a part of our teaching, sometimes that doesn't actually get at, we're going to start with our students. Here are mm-hmm. some of the things our students are experiencing. This is why we're now taking this step to kind of move forward. When we look at student data and we see that we, we, we clearly are missing the mark on some things here, friends. This is why we need to do next steps. I think, you know, when we hear student conversations, when we bring student work to the table, that becomes our why. And I think a lot of times we don't lead with that. We don't, we forget to lead with the why and we lead with all of the rationale or the what before we actually lead with the why and to me our students are the why and I believe Mm -hmm. that teachers really respond to that in a really strong way when they see what their kids our kids are telling us that they need next that impetus for shifting of practice or change um becomes a little stronger than um research tells us that (laughs) it's a little different and I think one of the things we advocate for a lot in
2: our text is um, the opportunity for teachers to experience a lesson the way students experience it. So whether that's through watching it on video or whether it's through actually experience themselves, mm-hmm. um, that, that that that's the way to really go, oh, that's what's, you know, until you break it down piece by piece by piece, that this is what um, the read aloud's going to look like, and this is the question you're going to ask, and this is how they might respond or might not respond um, until you actually break things down like that for teachers around, and until we break it down together. It's not breaking mm-hmm. down for teachers, but until we actually break it down together and sort of try to experience it like a student might. And that's really where the nugget of learning happens too.
0: So you're talking, uh, just to clarify, when you're talking about through video, you're talking about the teacher videoing themselves or, or something like that.
2: Absolutely. or an example okay. a, a videotaped lesson that's already, you know, okay online, right? That's an example because there are plenty of lessons out there that we can use in professional learning that are good examples and bad examples. And I think mm-hmm. we learn from all of that, just watching and analyzing our practice is so critical.
1: Okay. I think too, as we think about evaluating professional learning, you know, oftentimes our evaluation kind of stops at levels of satisfaction when really our evaluation comes from our kids in many ways, from their mm-hmm. work. From their discussion from those things that's that's where we see whether or not we're making an impact in our in our changes
0: Um, so what I like to do is um, you know if there's something we haven't touched on something you'd like to bring up uh, that we have an opportunity to talk about it so is there anything that maybe we haven't started uh, discussing that you'd like to enter into the conversation or something you'd like to clarify
1: I think one of the only things that we haven't necessarily talked about is the idea of a lead learner and the person who's responsible for facilitating the professional learning. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I just think, you know, that's one of the things that um, whether it's a coach or an assistant principal or a lead teacher, that there are some characteristics that I think we would want to embody. Um, as someone who is leading their colleagues in learning. And um, I think one of the things we really try to to get across is that you don't need to be an expert in the actual stuff because you are a learner beside those folks. And I think that that sometimes, um, when I think about district leaders that I know and coaches that I know that are planning professional learning, they oftentimes kind of arm themselves with being an expert rather than really designing the experience that's going to lead to the, to the maximum amount of learning for the colleagues that are happening, right? It goes back to mm-hmm. those who are doing the talking, those who are doing the work are doing the learning. And um, so I think that's just another piece to consider.
2: Yeah, and I would add, too, in sort of a slightly different Thing, perspective. I don't know that we've really addressed sort of all the resources that are here. I, I do feel like it's funny. I just, um, you know, when you
0: say I, here, you mean in the in, in the book, book right. In the appendices yeah, and okay, like
2: a little like you know an elevator pitch, right? Because I right. think it's interesting for folks out there. You know, I left. Um, it is the Learning Forward Book of the Month Club. And this past month, so that's been great. And there are lots of folks using, and, and just sort of as a way to use it, right? Like how mm-hmm. why someone might be interested in buying it or using it. Um, there are a lot of uh, professional learning leaders and districts who are actually using it with their teams to help think more deeply about. Um, their yearly plan, to help think more deeply about the importance of setting norms with their team, to help think more deeply about how to make sure the instructional coaches are involved in the work, right? It's just a a good resource uh, for teams to read and think about together. Um, in that way. And I think the one thing we tried really hard to include was not just a lot of the research that's out there, but a lot of really practical um, strategies and tools and questions to ask yourself if you're struggling with this concept that I think educators might find helpful to pull out, uh, pull off their shelf and use when they're planning. Yeah. And actually, Darren, I have a question for you.
0: Oh, well, okay. All right.
2: So Mar- this is a question Marisa and I have been struggling with just a little bit, right? Okay. So it's, we are so pleased with the work that we've created. We're excited to use it with teachers in the field. We're excited for others to use it engage. And by the way, there are tons of resources on Corwin, right? They're all there digitally available. But like, what's, after you've read it, because you took some time and I think you read mm-hmm. it thoroughly and deeply, what do you mm-hmm. feel like is the next step? What's missing? What do you want to know more about?
0: When, when you say the next step, the next step for a reader or the next step for you guys?
2: The next step for us.
0: For you guys.
2: Or a reader, actually, yeah. Like what do you want to know more about after having having read our our, our resource,
0: our book? I think for me, it would probably be seeing it in action, like being able to kind of methodically visualize it, kind of like you were saying with, um, you know, when you're trying to grab someone's heart, you know to, to be able to really find a, a good way for me if I like I'm not a principal or, or somebody who who leads uh who leads sessions um I'm a I'm a co-pilot but um you know it's uh it's something where I think if I was in that uh in that boat where say on August 14th I need to have something prepped I feel like there's a lot of really good material here, but for me to figure out where I prioritize this thing or that thing, um, I don't know. Maybe like a workbook or something uh, is is maybe where I would say if I was if I was going to use uh, this material for August 14th, it might be good to have a couple of things that are structured, even if they're small, sort of like hypotheticals.
2: It's funny so. that you say that because that's one of the pieces we've been batting around with one another is that the idea of case studies um, mm-hmm. connected to the work somehow. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think it's, you know, one of the things that I've really uh, appreciated with my experience this year as a coach was doing that work with the CRT groups um, because we did have a long range plan. It was full staff, so it had admin uh, admin backing, right, which I feel like, you know, there's there's two ways that things can really happen. One can be organic, where it just sort of builds momentum throughout a, a faculty. But the thing is, is you're still going to sort of have like a, a striated existence there, where there's like the group that's doing the stuff, and the group that's doing what's always been done, and they may not match up ever, right? But I think when you have Um, the administrative guidance to try and and justify some of the work that's being done, that it helps to coalesce and, and make that change possible for everyone. Now, maybe you're dragging a few people at the end there, you know, just slowly behind the boat. But, you know, at the same time, they understand that this is something that's important to the community as the leadership sees it.
2: I think that you just sort of hit the nail on the head right like that sounds I love the way you did your fingers like that
0: right <laughs>
2: It's that connected thread that's so critical for initiative to to be possible and take off in a in a district um, and that's all through this through professional learning and making it really coherent um, across across you know from superintendent to district coordinator mm-hmm. to building level principal to instructional coach to reading specialist to classroom teacher and then to student right like that everybody um has a part to play
0: yeah the, that shared vision you know um or, or mission if uh, if you're setting mission statements you know however however it's iterated <laughs> so
1: awesome thank you so much for this opportunity darren it's
0: yeah, really well, fun. I'm glad you guys could join me. I really enjoy doing this. It gives me a chance to, to, you know, talk shop without uh, having to worry about interruption.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it too. It's been super fun for us and super fun for us to think about the work in this way. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's our first podcast.
0: Thank yeah. Oh, this is, this is great. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to be honored to do that. That's okay. that's great. And are we um, the
2: last one for a while. Is that my understanding?
0: Um, I am actually tomorrow I'm talking with Jane Key so I'll be talking with her in the morning and then um, I've got um, I've got a couple other folks that I'm lining up I'm working on I don't have anyone who's committed yet but um, my goal is to keep doing this while I'm in Germany so oh good it'll allow me to keep a foot in the door over here you know yeah. well this is
1: fun yes yeah. awesome thanks again I appreciate
0: it yeah well it's good to meet you Marisa you too
1: Darren Thank
0: you. you. Episode 24 is a wrap. Thanks again to Isabel and Marisa. Uh, I had a good time talking with them. I hadn't had a chance to talk with Isabel since uh, back in September. We'd been in touch via Twitter and and things like that to try and set up for this interview. but. but other than that it, it hadn't been a, a good conversation so it was nice to catch up with her and i know we we talked a little bit after we had finished the session um and then it was a pleasure to talk with marisa as well uh especially after having read the book so anyway um the next uh episode is going to be with dr jane kesey uh we will cover a lot of ground on that one in fact i've already recorded that session i'm trying to work ahead as i said in the uh, the conversation we just had Um, I'm gonna be in Germany uh, starting August so I want to try and get a few episodes under my belt Um, That way I'm not trying to scramble to do some podcasts while I'm also learning a new job, learning a new city, and also learning a new country. Um, I speak a little bit of German, but I'm sure I will probably make an idiot of myself several times before I start getting the hang of it properly. So anyway, uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can go to theednarrative.com. And uh, there's a contact page, so you can go through that and and do an email. Or if you want to follow us on Twitter, which I would recommend, uh, or you could send a direct message via Twitter. So many ways you can use it. Um, The handle for Twitter is at The Ed Narrative. So uh, I look forward to doing this again, and thank you guys for listening. Catch you later.